If you have your Bibles, turn to Job chapter 2. Now, Job was a man who was upright, blameless, feared God, and turned from evil. And there was an opportunity when Satan came to present himself along with the sons of God, that God had a conversation with Satan and said, have you considered my servant Job and told Satan that Job was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning from evil? And Satan's response was to accuse Job and said, well, the only reason that Job doesn't uh, worship you is because you bless him so much. And if you take away the blessings, he'll curse you to your face. And God said, go ahead but you can't touch him. And Satan goes off and he, in a rapid succession of, of tragedies, Job's wealth is taken away. His seven sons and his three daughters are killed and he's devastated both financially and personally for the loss of his children. And he, begins to mourn as the custom in that time of tearing the clothes and shaving the head and, and sitting in ashes. But he worshiped God and he didn't blame God. And so now we follow up um, in this situation in chapter two, where it says, and at, and at the conclusion of chapter one, it says, and Job through all of this did not sin nor did he blame God. So in chapter 2, it says this, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. So Satan keeps doing what Satan does. The first time they had this conversation back in Job chapter 1, when God asked Satan what he was doing, he says, well, I'm roaming around the earth, checking it out. And as the New Testament says, that Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Satan is always consistent. He is our adversary. He is our accuser. He is our enemy. And he continues to do that. So in essence, Satan is, does what Satan always does. Verse 3, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Again, he asked the question in the second conversation, have you thought about Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now notice that God makes the same statement about Job's character before these tragic events and after these tragic events? Would it be that we would be the same disciples, whether tragedy strikes or blessing is given, that these things don't change Job and these circumstances should not change us? And he still holds fast his integrity 
although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. I'm saying there was no reason to harm Job, but I allowed you to do it. You incited me, but there was no cause for it. Job was blameless, upright, fearing me, turning from evil. Now, at this point, Satan, you would think, would say, you know, God, you're right. You know your people better than I do. I challenged Job's integrity because you had blessed him. And I thought that the only reason he praised you was because he blessed you blessed him. And I was wrong. And it's not what Satan does. Notice what Satan now does. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give up for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Satan accuses Job in the same way this second conversation, except he says, well, you blessed him. Okay, he didn't. But you know, if you take away his health, if you make him painful, if you do these things, he will then curse you. So I was wrong at first, but now it's when it comes down to it, people only desire the health. And you've heard people and you've seen it. They'll, you know, some tragic event will happen and somebody will say, well, at least you have your health. Minor consolation. So Satan accuses him. But again, that's what Satan does. And we need to remember that just because we have one victory over Satan doesn't mean he stops. He keeps fighting and he keeps accusing and he keeps being our adversary until he thinks we lose. So because you win round one doesn't mean the fight's over. So he accuses him and says, if you take away his health, he'll curse you to your face. And he says, not only will he curse you again, it's he will curse you to your face. He'll look at you, God, and curse you. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Again, we see that God is sovereign. He allows Satan to do this to Job, but he says, you have a limit. You cannot kill him. Now, this makes sense in a couple of reasons. If he kills him, then we don't know whether Job will pass the test because he'll be dead. So God said, here's the limits on the test. You can't kill him. You must spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So whatever this disease is, it is a total body disease. It goes crown of the head to the sole of the feet. It is a total body experience. He loses his entire health. And then notice what he says. And he being Job took a posture to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Now a posture is basically broken pottery. So he takes broken pottery, basically like a knife and he scrapes his skin. 
and he's sitting among ashes. Now, I think the reason he's sitting among ashes is one, he's mourning, but the other is the, the chemicals in ash. I think he's trying to treat as a medicine to, to soothe him. And then he's scraping his skin. Now, I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV, but this is probably not really helpful. But he probably experiences some relief from it. Now, all of us know at least one, I've known several people who, because of some type of inflammation or itch, they scratch and scratch and scratch to the point that they create wounds and, and, and they have a greater problem. Now they have to have wound care. But the, the itching and whatever is so painful and you, you scratch because that's what provides relief, even though in the future it may cause further problems. And so we see that this health situation is such that he's taking broken pottery and scraping himself in the middle of ashes. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm glad I'm not Job. This does not sound fun. And then in verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, when I have read this in the past, I have viewed it as basically one more counsel, basically as a result of hate or anger because her life has been turned upside down. She no longer is wealthy. She no longer has her 10 kids. She, she going, and notice he, there's no introspection here. It's not, well, maybe I messed up. It's you've, are, are you still holding fast your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? I'm tired of seeing you. And later on, and we'll see in, in um, the book of Job, that his wife, the lot, next time she's brought up, and the last time she's brought up, she she thinks he's got bad breath. It's just foul. She, she never seems to be sympathetic. Now, I read some people who have a different view. Now, I'm glad I read this second view because this second view caused me to withdraw my first view. I don't accept the second view, but I want to tell you what it is. So sometimes reading things that you don't agree with helps you to come to the right conclusion. And so some people say, well, she did this because of her love for him, that he was in such pain, in such agony, that he ought to just die, and that, that pain would be over well, and he'd be better off. I don't buy it. So I'll tell you what I do think now that I've had my first view, and I've read this view. There's another situation where someone counseled another person. Jesus told his disciples that it was necessary for him to be crucified and buried and rise on the third day. And Peter, being his disciple, and I'm sure being not only Jesus being his rabbi, but having affection for Jesus, that the last thing he wanted was that Jesus die. So he said, Lord, this isn't so. Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan. Now, I'm sure Peter had many 
wonderful intentions on the counsel he gave. But it was coming from a point of view of Satan. I think this is exactly what's happened here. I don't care whether her intentions are good. I don't care whether her intentions are bad. Her intentions are to get Job to do what Satan wanted Job to do, to say that God's wrong. Curse God and die. Isn't that what Satan wanted Job to do, to curse God? And so sometimes people will give you counsel, and it may be evil intent or it may be loving intent, but the, the ultimate result is don't take it because it violates what God is doing. So in my view, she is counseling him as if it was Satan. And I think Job is a little nicer because he's got to live with his wife. So he says this, you speak as one of the foolish women. Now notice, even took the New Testament thing, don't call somebody a fool. He says, you speak as a foolish woman. He didn't call her a fool. You speak as a foolish woman. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? He makes his point. Whether he, God blesses me or takes my wealth, or whether he gives me great health or takes it away from me, are we going to not accept good and not adversity? Because maybe, just maybe, in the adversity, God is demonstrating who he is and who we ought to be. So he rejects her counsel. And praise God he did. Because to accept that counsel would be to take the side of Satan in that conversation between God and Satan. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Satan had told, if you take away his help, he'll curse you to your, your face. And Job did not, even though he was suffering greatly in his health, and even though his wife counseled him to curse God. He refused to sin with his lips, but acknowledged that as he did, as we saw last week, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, part of the problem is we read this and we quickly read it. The interesting thing about pain and ill health, it doesn't just go away in 15 minutes. It's stuck with you. You may have to file bankruptcy and it may be a difficult psychological thing to handle, but you always kind of come up with it and you plan and you do things and you whatever and you try to have hope. When there is severe illness, you live with it minute by minute by minute and it's wearing on you and it's easy to not see hope and it's easy to give up and it's easy to blame God. Job suffered through this. 
not in just a few minutes as we read, but he suffered. But I want you to see something, so I want you to turn to Psalm 139. Because if and when you experience these things, whether you suffer the loss of wealth or friends or family or health, and your friends may seem to counsel you and your family may even counsel you to do things that you ought not to do, you are not alone. Psalm 139 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You see, this whole conversation took place because God knew Job. And God knows you. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. He said, the psalmist is saying, God knows so much about me. He knows my thoughts. He knows when I get up. He knows when I sit down. He knows what path I take, whether I go on the 405 or the 22 or whatever. He knows where I am and what I'm doing. And not only does he know where we're going and when we get up and when we sit down, even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Fortunately, there have been times when I've wanted to say something but I didn't because it would be helpful, hurtful to the person I was going to say it to. But God knew what I was going to say, even though the other person did it. He knew before a word was on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. You see, you're not... God knows what you're doing, and he's there ahead of you. He's there behind you, and he's got his hand on you. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. The whole idea that God, the God of the universe, has his hand on you and me and millions of other believers. Wow, he's God. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or in death, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn and if I dwell on the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. He's saying, it doesn't matter where I go. You're there. And sometimes we get this wrong impression. We get so wrapped up in our emotions that we'll say sometimes like, well, when I pray, it seems like it only gets to the ceiling. The psalmist is saying, he's there. He's got his hand on you. He knows where you are. He knows how you feel. Before you've even said it, he knows. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. It doesn't matter how dark physically it might get or how dark emotionally I might get. He is there and he sees. For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully 
and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Now, I'm not too sure why God didn't make me to look like some of the handsome Hollywood actors. But he made me, and apparently that's wonderful. And he made you, and it's wonderful. So maybe you don't need plastic surgery, because God made you, and it's wonderful. He made each of us separate and distinct, and we're wonderfully made. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God, the psalmist says, God knows you so well and knew you so well. He knew, knew you when you were in your mother's womb. Not only did he form you, he knew you. Ephesians tells us he knew about you before he ever said, let there be light. That's how much God knows you. You can't fool him. You can't disguise yourself. He knows you. He knows where you go. He knows where you stay. He knows your body. He knows your mind. He knows your words. He knows you. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. Now, the conversation that God had with Satan ended up with Job losing almost everything. Find it interesting, and I think the reason that Satan didn't take Job's wife is because he used her as an ally. Because you would have thought God would have taken everything. So Satan is kind of smart. But he goes, you... Your thoughts about me, oh God, how precious are they. God made these statements about Job because he knew who Job was. And God knows who you are. And as we took a look before, God will not allow anything to come upon us that we can't handle. And he will give us a way to escape. He knows how far you can go. And that means that there are some of you that God has a great opinion of. Because you seem to have health issues and other issues after issue after issue. And you still say, I will follow the Lord. He is mine and I am his. God's thoughts are precious to you. It doesn't matter the circumstance. It doesn't matter what you're going through. Your, his thoughts about you, just like his thoughts about Job, were precious. How vast is the sum of them? If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. That's how much God wants to bless you and considers you. They're more numerous than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that I would slay the wicked, O oh God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe 
those who rise up against you. I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. The psalmist says, I am made a stand. The people of God, I'm with. The people who hate God, I'm against. And God, I hope you do something about them. And I don't want to participate with them. The psalmist isn't saying, can't we all just get along? He's saying, I, you know where I stand. I stand with God. And now he, the psalmist is going to say something that I think we need to say, but oftentimes are very scared for the answer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And if there be any hurtful way in me, and see if there be any hurtful way. He's saying, try me. Take it out. I want you to treat me as the refiner's fire. Take all the impurities out of my life and make my life pure for you. Search me. Now notice he didn't say that my friends are to search me or my church is to search me or my pastor is to search me. It's God who does the searching. He says, try me and know if there's any anxious thoughts in me. Am I going to be tempted to go the wrong way as opposed to trust you? Is there those anxious thoughts or am I mind set on you? And see if there be any hurtful way in me. I want to make sure that my life is a testimony to your mercy and your faithfulness and your love. And I want that what people see, not hatred and rejection and judgment. And lead me in the everlasting way. You see, the psalmist understands that God has his hands on us. And it's not sufficient for him just to have his hands on us. He wants God to lead us into life everlasting. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is that way of everlasting. And the psalmist says, lead me. So when adversity comes and when Satan should accuse us of not being who we are or circumstances be that we lose wealth or we lose family or we lose friends or we lose whatever that we, happens, the question is, how do we respond? There is clay and there is wax, two different elements. If you go out in the summer sun when it's hot, 
If you expose clay to the summer sun, it will become hardened. If you expose wax in the summer sun, it will melt. It's the quality of the material. God is the one who made the material. God is the one who made you. We need to be those who, in circumstances, don't harden, but become melted like wax, that he can mold us and form us into what he wants. You see, we have an advantage over Job because we know that God knew that Job was upright and blameless, fearing God and turning from evil. In the midst of all of this, it was overwhelming. But he knew who God was. And you who God is and knows who God will be and therefore can trust him and he can worship him even in difficult circumstances. And that is the message that we need to see from Job. When circumstances happen, it's not necessarily because God is mad at you. It's not necessarily because God is judging you but he's trying to reveal to you and to others exactly what kind of material you are and the impurities that's in your life. He's drawing out so that you might be even more precious. You're already precious to God, but he's making you more and more and more precious to be more and more and more like his son because that's what his purpose is and that's what his plan is. And sometimes, in order to get that out of us, he needs to have us experience difficulty. And sometimes we experience joy and great rejoicing. He's doing it in such a way to make us more like Jesus. So when blessings are in difficulty, blessed be the name of the Lord. Whether he leads us and we don't know where he's leading us or why he's leading us, or we don't understand the circumstance and can't see what's happening. We need to trust him because he's worthy to be trusted, because he's demonstrated he's worthy to be trusted, and that he considers you precious. And we can trust him. We trust him not for the rest of our lives, we trust him today and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. As they say, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do you trust God? Not by saying for the rest of my life, but I trust him this next 15 minutes and the next 15 minutes and the next 15 minutes. Because I don't know what's going to happen 15 minutes from now. But I do know that I am wonderfully and fearfully made, that he considers my waking up, my lying down. He leads me no matter where I go. And even when it seems too dark, even for me, he sees me clearly. He sees you and you can trust him. And all God's people said,